This is the Breachside Broadcast, the best Fox casting either side of the breach. Salutations, friends! I am your announcer, and this here is Tales of Malifaux. For the next duration, take a break and allow us to get you up to date with the good word from the city. Starting things off today, we have a lost property notice. The guardsman outpost just down the road would like to remind our listeners that owning a guild peacebringer is strictly forbidden. It is an offence that carries hefty punishments. Anyone who has stumbled upon such an object should hand it in to a friendly member of your law enforcement team. One such weapon has recently vanished from the possession of a guard by the name of Ewan Alcorn, and we would all like the man to be reunited with his sidearm. Let's all pull together and help the man out, listeners. Story time! Here we are, starting things off with Ambush. Ambush. Sonia and Samael rode side by side. Behind them, four guild guardsmen rode at a distance. One said it was so the two senior officers could have privacy. Samael knew it was more out of discomfort and fear. Sonia could do that to a person. The horses maintained a leisurely trot, and the slight beat of their hooves against the soft earth allowed for conversation. There was, however, no exchange. Sonia had a ragged leather-bound book spread open on the pommel of her saddle. Embossed on the front of the book were the words, The Philosophy of Uncertainty. She read quietly to herself from the book as the horses put miles behind them. You're the only person I know that can read in the saddle, Samael said, testing Sonia's attention. Sonia smirked and closed the book. How many literate people do you know, Samael? she quipped. Samael laughed at her sarcastic jab. It wasn't often that the two of them had a moment like this to relax. The grim work of a witch hunter left a person jaded and detached. No other guild force worked so intimately with the people of Malifaux, and few had to endure the political wrangling that they did. The people of Malifaux would never consider the two of them heroes. Theirs was a thankless job. They were much more likely to be labelled villains for the subtle crimes they policed. The rising influence of the Union only exacerbated the issue. Union propaganda actively campaigned against the witch hunters, calling them thought police and the martial arm of a fascist dictator. You've had your nose stuck in that book for months. You must have read it a dozen times by now. What is it that has you so captivated? Sonia looked at the cover of the journal for a moment before tucking it into her coat. It was true. She had barely put the thing down since she'd confiscated it from the witch Rasputina. It was hard, though, to explain her fascination. The things this man experienced, especially in regards to the events of Kythera, the way he explains them, they so mirror my own memories of that place. For Philip Toomer's, his life changed dramatically after witnessing the opening of the artificial breach. I felt the significance of that moment, too. It was an epiphany. Yeah, of course, Samael said. Me? Now, when the pressure mounts, I just want to go hunting. Maybe have a few shots of gin or whiskey with the boys. You? Things get heavy and you read a book. Well, not just any book. And not exactly normal pressure, either. If we were not there in that crucial moment, this world would be a very different place. If what lies beneath Kythera is truly what Tumas thought, death itself would have been loosed upon us. If what lies beneath Kythera is truly what Tumas thought, Death itself would have been loosed upon us. That is the epiphany. 
It falls to us to do these things which others cannot or will not. Though we are damned by those we save, it is for us to face the remnants and influence of old Malifaux and squash them. That we survived, that our sanity persevered where others failed, this is the proof of our duty. He had heard such grandiose self-righteousness from Sonia before. It was this kind of justification that allowed her to callously hunt the pitiful, flightling sorcerers of Malifaux's slums before they were recruited by the Arcanists. It was the same kind of justification she used to come to terms with the events of Kythera. For him, the memory was very different. He and Sonia did not prevent the workings of the device. They enabled it. If it were not for Ramos' intervention and his superweapon, they would have loosed a plague of unknown potency upon this world. That plague had destroyed people. Only a handful of deputies had left it with their minds unbroken. He didn't condemn her for that self-righteousness, however. He admired her for it. He knew she was not deluded by it, but understood the errors that had led to the terrible events of that day. That purity of focus, however, allowed her to pursue her agenda with a single-minded determination and clarity of purpose. The Governor-General had chosen well in naming her his chief witch-hunter. Tamail knew, too, why the Governor had named him as her aide. Tamail had to be her conscience where she had none. I think Tumors would have appreciated your pension for the dramatic, Sonia, but I agree. We're the best option for Malifaux. The people have no idea just how bad it is. I have suspicions that it must be confirmed before we act, and there's so many ways this could go wrong. I need allies I can trust, Samuel. You sure you want to be a part of this? You really have to ask, he said. Even if I didn't believe in what we do. Riding with you was way more interesting than hunting three-headed sabers, as I'd assume. Then our circle of trust will have to tighten a bit. We'll need more stalkers with us soon. They'll obey us, absolutely. I need a steward. That's you. And you'll answer only to me. You ride where I ride, and no other will command you. He nodded. Fine by me. But Whistling Steward, the best we can do, he quipped. You have a better title in mind, she asked with a smile. Samuel Hopkins, Hero of the People? She actually laughed out loud, which surprised him. We'll save that for when you're in charge. And she surprised him again by tossing him a small bag of soul stones. Start by mastering those, Hero. He felt the stones within the pouch thoughtfully. This trip to the Ortega Ranch. It's not about delivering those witched bullets, is it? She glanced back at the guild guards, ensuring their privacy. No, that's just an excuse. Regardless of our moral authority, we must have allies. I know the Ortegas are more ethically flexible than Lady Justice. We'll also need more than whistling stalkers if I'm right about Kythera and some of the Arcanum in this book. I think there's a war brewing we know nothing about, by forces that would consider us nothing more than an irritation. As they rode to the top of a small hill, Samael reined in his horse. There it is. Ladigo. The Ortega stronghold. Samael called out to the guardsman. Be ready. The captain rode out to join him. Sir, is there a problem? He asked. No, not yet. Those Ortega maniacs built that damn fortress out here on the edge of the wilds to taunt the Nephilim. Kind of a slap in the face and a constant challenge. Nephilim are pissed and they might be savage, but they sure ain't dumb. They're all through this area looking for a chance to slap the Ortegas right back he said, sweeping his arms to the sparse wooded areas throughout the landscape surrounding the ranch. Very few men have what it takes to homestead in the outlands of Malifaux. With a stockpile of high-caliber firearms and a constant xenophobic paranoia, the Ortegas created a sprawling villa. The thing was as much a fort as it was a ranch, meant to repel the beasts of the Malifaux wilds and to withstand the siege of the term in Neverborn. Humans in this world clustered together under the canopy of the guild for protection, seeking sanctuary and civilization. Latigo was an oasis in the wilderness. 
a fortress in the wastes. It consisted of several large log-constructed buildings arranged in a walled compound, built on terraced earth. Each structure sat higher than the one below. Gathered together, those buildings could have equally been a monastery or a military compound. It housed the gathered members of the Ortega clan and served as the unofficial headquarters of the Neverborn Hunter Task Force. It held a very tactically important position. Situated in close proximity to the Bayou Wetlands, populated by Gremlin raiders, and serving as a barrier to their activities. They rode cautiously. Each man with his pistol in hand and cocked at the ready. Sonia deferred to Samael's lead, experience supporting the notion that his hunting skills would come in handy when an ambush might be around the next bend. As they drew closer to the dense foliage that enveloped both sides of the road, Samael held his clenched fist in the air for them to halt, and the guardsmen cast nervous glances from him to the undergrowth around them. He remained motionless, listening intently. Finally, with a nod towards Sonya, he turned his steed and plunged into a thick growth, disappearing from sight. His horse, well trained to move with Samael, passed easily through the brush and trees. Sonya pulled the great sword from her back. The magical weapon glowed faintly a deep azure. Long seconds passed as the men shifted nervously in their saddles, the horses stepping anxiously as they were kept in check. Thundering hooves suddenly erupted within the woods, and they all expected Samael to burst forth, urgent to rejoin them, so they were shocked when a great Nephilim lunged forth, the striking hoofbeats from it rather than Samael's mount. The men were seasoned and trained, and should have responded to it bursting out of the trees with a shower of shattered branches. But this creature surpassed anything they'd ever heard of or imagined. They saw that the great Nephilim, while a massive creature, was not the thick, masculine beast they'd all heard of, with broad and sinewy bare chest who could kill a man with its two slashing claws. Instead, barreling toward them was an extremely large Nephilim female. The guardsmen barely moved to defend themselves, and the great wings upon her back stretched and snapped back with a clap, propelling her forward. Her lithe body spun as she left the ground, and the creature's great sword, as long as a horse and wider than a man's waist, arced around and caught one guardsman in the chest sending his body back more than a dozen yards. Her cloven hooves dug into the earth, and she rose, towering above the nearest man, easily doubling his size. Her spreading wings bathed him in shadow. He lifted his pistol only through the instinct of training, but she lunged forward, easily tossing aside both man and horse. Her arm reached out and grabbed a third man. She let her greatsword fall, lifting him from his saddle and tore him in half at the waist. She crouched and her lower jaw distended, and her lips pulled back as her face twisted with rage. She bent and screamed, the howl pulsing and reverberating from deep within her chest. Sonya, trained in experience in hunting down the most dangerous man alive, still fought against the terror this great creature instilled, and could not focus the magical energies around her in an attack. The guardsman nearest to her, however, could not control his panic and bolted. The last guardsman, knocked from his horse, cowered futilely beneath a shrub at the side of the road. His horse, however, stumbled upright. Samael burst forth from the underbrush on foot and deftly leapt upon the horse even as it began to run away. He shouted over his shoulder, Sonia, ride! It was not in her character to flee from battle, yet she made an exception that day as her spurs dug smartly into Ember's flanks. Ember ran faster than she'd ever before, urged on by the sudden screams of the last guardsman found beneath his shrub and mercilessly killed. Sonia caught up to Samael and shouted, You okay? What happened to your horse? Samael hitched a thumb back from where he'd burst from the woods, and Sonya turned to see a small swarm of tiny Nephilim pouring forth from the same location. The great female Nephilim casually touched one, and it twisted and writhed at her touch. Growing over double its former size in an instant, a small wing sprouted from its back. What the hell is that thing? Samael shouted back. No idea, 
Nephilim, that's for sure. Most powerful one I've ever seen. Although they rode hard toward Latigo, Nephilim were known for their speed, and even the youngest tot could pace a horse. They weren't really worried about the Nephilim tots, though, as the great female took up her incredible sword and took flight, quickly closing the distance between them. The seasoned witch hunters had ridden away from dozens of gun battles. They worked in perfect concert, and when Sonya tugged on the reins of her horse and steered him to the right, Samael matched her, keeping the woman and her giant blade between him and their assailant. They soon emerged from the dense woodlands into more open hills. Before them, riding atop a sturdy Spanish stallion, a broad-shouldered man emerged from his hiding place and charged towards them. His ragged duster flapped furiously in the wind, and his spurs dug cruelly into the flanks of his steed. He guided his mount with his knees while his hands held two giant pistols. He had narrow eyes and thick mutton chops on his cheeks. The extended clips in his pistols allowed for a devastating hail of fire, and he rained shots down past the two hunters at the great Nephilim. You heard a shriek above the thunderous hooves of the horses as bullets sank into its tough flesh. Santiago Ortega turned his mount and doubled back, joining them as he twisted in the saddle and continued to fire upon the creature. You did this, Creed, he shouted to her in accusation. Not now, Santiago. He continued to fire at the pursuing creature. You didn't come here out unexpected and without warning. You know better than that. It's true that Sonia had broken protocol and had not followed the procedures the Ortegas established. Latigo loomed before them, and she could see a rather young boy perched atop a tall tower, taking aim upon the pursuing creature. The Nephilim shrieked again, followed by the echoing blasts from the boy's rifle. Then another. The creature broke its pursuit, but they continued to ride hard towards the compound. At the gates, they pulled to an abrupt stop as Francisco, the family's eldest, strode out to greet them, his own pistol at the ready. Sonia said, Thanks. How did you know he needed the help? Francisco nodded to a guardsman horse within the compound that belonged to the first man that had bolted. Santiago's legendary temper could not be controlled even toward her, however, as he spat. How many died out there with you, Creed? Mind yourself, she warned. He snarled at the leader of the guild witch hunters, saying, You mind yourself. You endangered your own men in this compound, too. Boy, you stand down. The voice was a croak as dry and brittle as tinder. Somehow it still held the volume necessary to demand immediate obedience. Abuelita, get back inside, Santiago said to the venerable old woman shuffling up behind Francisco. She hefted a large shotgun and triggered a blast into the air as a kind of warning. It knocked her back without phasing her, and she barked, The second shells for back talk like that. Creed's a guest. No apologize, boy. Get in and set the table for two more. Santiago burned with rage, but would never consider defying the matriarch of the Ortega clan. Grudgingly, he muttered, My apologies, Creed. He was frustrated at the danger brought to his door, but fought down the anger and nodded at Sonia with respect. Lashing the reins of his horse, he rode towards the villa. Sonia and Samael offered a bow to the wizened woman. Thank you kindly, my Ortega, was Samael's greeting. It's our honor to be welcome at Latigo. Sonia was silent, sheathing her sword upon her back. Abuela Ortega gave the woman an appraising look, squinting her nearsighted eyes. Boy, shut up and get inside, she said to Samael. Dinner's on, and I won't tolerate it getting cold. As they followed the old woman, the savory aroma of the evening meal wafted out to greet them. Twenty men, women, and children gathered around an enormous table, each one of them quite clearly an Ortega. Those Ortegas who were deputies of the guild. Those who hunted Neverborn while the rest attended to the villa sat at one end, including Perdita, a dazzling woman possessing the generous curves the Ortega women were known for.
Her exterior belied her silent and reserved demeanor, and her incredible skill with firearms. She was so young, Sonia remarked to herself, and she said very little while the room clamored with voices. Yet Pedita had studied the two intently. Despite his own great confidence, Samael found himself blushing and turned aside from her penetrating gaze. He found her presence disconcerting. Francisco possessed the presence of authority and directed the younger members of the clan to find their seats. He was tall and dressed a bit finer than his fellows. His brother Santiago sat at the table, shoveling great quantities of food from the center of the table onto his plate. The youngest never-born hunter, a boy the rest referred to as Nino, pleasantly prepared a plate for his uncle, the legend Papa Loco, before ever thinking of himself. Still, even in the dining room of the Ortega compound, Papa Loco wasn't trusted with sharp or pointed silverware. He dug into his meal with a blunt wooden spoon, and Nino assisted him, urging him to slow down, and even helped him take a drink. The boiler Ortega shot an expectant look at Sonia and Samael, and after only a moment of hesitation they joined the meal as well. Dinner at Latigo was a boisterous affair accompanied by hefty amounts of food and generous helpings of tall tales. Every story featured a monster bigger than the last, or a shot so miraculous that angels in the heavens must have put a hand on the bullet. The food, drink, and revelry soon reached a lull. Padita, who had not spoken at all during the meal, cleared her throat. There was immediate silence. She asked her privacy with the witch-hunters, and all the rest quickly gathered up their dirty dishes and were gone from the room within a moment. Sonia had never been with the Ortegas outside of their professional duties, and she respected the young girl even more, seeing how quickly those around her deferred to Padita's authority without hesitation. When only her father and two brothers remained, she asked, Sonia, why have you come here? Sonia's own voice had a similar weight, and all those at the table knew dire matters were about to be discussed. She said, First, let me answer your hospitality with a gift. She stood a motion to Samael at her side. Reaching into a satchel at his hip, the man produced a small oak box inlaid with the Ortega's brand in walnut. He opened the box, and inside were twenty rounds. On the frontier, one caliber was ubiquitous. A forty-five caliber round was better known as mortal caliber, a round selected specifically for its ability to kill a man. These rounds had been specially prepared by Sonya's staff, and bore the mark of witchcraft upon them. Each was subtly engraved with a winding serpent. The coils of the snake crafted to engage the rifling of the firearm it was fired from. More curious was the fact that the tip of each was set with the faceted soul stone. Each tiny stone glowed with a sanguine color, like the blood it would draw from its victim. The serpent was the current obsession of Sonya Crid, and she had commanded the witches in her employ to imbue these rounds with the venomous poison of that creature. I offer these witch rounds so that the enemies of the Ortega clan might know only death. Sonia spoke much more with the tone of her voice and the motion of her eyes. Perita simply nodded in acceptance, though she left the box untouched on the table before her. Sonia continued, I know that the Neverborn hunters have been directed to raid the Grenland encampment to the east of here. Our research has suggested that notable ruins exist in that area. I am interested in recovering artifacts that bear this mark, she said pointing at the winding serpent. Samael rose and drew out a piece of parchment from his poncho and rolled it out upon the table. A very simple emblem was drawn on the paper. To Santiago, it resembled a cattle brand not unlike the Ortega's own. Everyone around the table crowded in to look at the mark. It was an image of a snake wound around a sleeping eye. I'm looking for this, she said. The snake is used throughout the artifacts I've been studying. It's a key or symbol. Maybe a hieroglyph ancient even to the Neverborn. If we can understand it, I believe we will unlock something no human has ever seen. Something amazing and awful. 
If you can help me find the serpent, we may begin to unlock the secrets. Be wary if you do. There's something unspoken in the research surrounding the serpent imagery. But Eta thought for a moment, a finger absently twirling a long black lock of hair. She reached for the box of ammunition and pulled a bullet from within. She had a pistol drawn and bullet chambered quicker than Samel could follow. Her pistol roared. It followed the trajectory of the bullet to a support beam above the mantel on the other side of the room. The hole the bullet made sizzled, giving off an olive-coloured smoke that smelled like rotten eggs. Francisco left his seat to examine the hole more closely as Perdita stared at it solemnly. Don't touch the hole, Sonia warned. Why's that? It'll burn your skin like acid. About an hour, I'd guess, and it'll be safe to handle. But we never fired it through a wooden beam to test that. Francisco winced at the burning of his eyes when he leaned in close to inspect it. Then he nodded in appreciation. Looks like it punched clean through. Perita shifted her gaze to Sonia. Search for your serpent in some possibly lost ruins, in what might be the single most dangerous location on Malifaux? Just between ourselves, of course. Sonia actually found herself fidgeting. She didn't expect the young woman to be so brazen and strong-willed. We'll do it. For one hundred more of these bullets. Samael guffawed. One hundred? That's crazy. You have any idea what's involved in making those? The work, the money, the magic? Hell, the testing alone. Sonia put her hand on his arm, stifling him. One hundred, she said with a nod. Nothing, it seemed, was free in Malifaux. And Padita proved she was far more brash and confident than Sonia realized. It was a good sign. Padita nodded and said, Find a serpent in some Malifaux ruins. Be careful around it because it's the key to something awful. Keep this between us till we sort it out. Got it. Ya blame fools is gonna get yourself killed. Abuela Ortega scolded from the entry to the kitchen, ignoring the request for privacy. Rules in the Ortega house didn't apply to her. Francisco nodded and said, We'll be careful, Abuelita. We'll come back in one piece. Yeah, you will. You'll do some good if you don't, you ask me. Running around the countryside, kicking up dust. She continued to berate them for their stupid Ortega stubbornness, though her voice dwindled away as she stamped through the house. Shooting this, that, and the other thing that moves before checking to see if it's even related to you first. Cabrones locos. Her voice trailed off, but they could hear her cursing for a while. sponsors. The lovely ladies from the Star Theatre would like to present a night of murder. <coughs> Everything seems like a regular night on the town, but then <coughs> Benjamin Keith III collapses on the floor? What happened? Spoilers! Now that would be telling. Besides, it is up to you to find that out. Join us at the Star Theatre for a night you won't be able to forget, a night you won't want to forget. Get that grey matter working and that pulse racing as we try to get to the bottom of this devilish deed. A night of murder at the Star Theatre. Places are filling up quickly, so pick up your tickets now. Now for our second story, Lover's Kiss.
Lover's Kiss. Kerai awoke at the feel of cool metal upon her hand, held lovingly by Francis, son of the Governor-General. He took her hand and gently slid the ring down her delicate middle finger. It was a perfect fit, and she marveled at its beauty. It was polished silver and studded along its surface with tiny green gemstones, cut at interesting angles so that together they overlapped, forming transparent snake scales that wrapped around her finger. The snake's head was a large stone that rested near her first knuckle. The rising Malifaux sun filtered in through the window and lit up the stone so that Karai thought it looked like a tiny slumbering dragon snuggled against her finger. To her it was an omen of good fortune, though neither could know it at the time. Fate unlocked a door the moment this ring, an ancient talisman of Malifaux, was slipped upon her finger. The two lovers lay together in bed. Their room was at the Key and Gong, a tavern in the slums district that catered to illicit deals of contraband and other indiscreet endeavours of the flesh. The district had a minimal guild presence, which made this tavern a popular meeting place for those wishing to avoid its intruding eye. That few of them even spoke English added to the clandestine mystique of the place. Karai worked for the tavern as an escort and prostitute, and for many visitors to Malifaux, the Key and Gong was their first taste of the exotic Orient. Francis held her hand up near her face, looking from her eyes to the stones, pretending to study them gravely. Ah, he said, feigning disappointment, just as I feared. What? she asked, concerned as she looked at the beautiful ring upon her finger. I thought I'd finally found a gift we call your beauty, but I failed again. Francis smiled at her, and she gazed into his eyes. There she saw his obvious adoration for her, the dreamy-eyed gaze of young love. He marveled at her beauty. The gentle contours of her naked body disguised only by the deep red silk of a single bedsheet. As was the custom for so many peoples, the exchange of such love tokens implied the convergence of two destinies. Although the couple came from different cultures, the forbidden union of the Governor-General's son and common harlot represented far more to Francis than a mere rebellion. Their connection went deep, and he conveyed to her the nearly desperate need he had to be with her along with the need to demonstrate that eternal devotion. He tried every time he saw her to give her some small token that showed her how much he loved and needed her, to give her something that would bring him one step closer to giving her the happiness she gave him, though he felt it an insurmountable impossibility. Karai looked down at the ring on her finger, and the weight of that promise overwhelmed her. She too felt that devotion and longed to give him the same love and promise, but she never had much to offer other than herself. It's beautiful, she said, trying to find the words to convey her love. Months earlier, she'd been hired by the Governor-General to escort his son to a gala event. Their romance was something he hadn't bargained on. As if reading the very thoughts from his mind, she said, What would your father think if he saw you here giving me this? She asked dreamily. Well, it would have made things much more difficult if he were here several hours earlier, he answered with a wolfish grin as he pinched the soft flesh above her hip. Yes, she said, not afraid to explore that bawdy avenue either. After all, she was not shy and had greater experiences than Francis could even imagine. Perhaps he would have been proud of you, she said, adopting a look of consideration. Although I'd have tried to remain quiet, just a bit, more ladylike than normal. Her tiny body and face maintained the illusion of youth, yet her speech gave no indication that she might even consider the topic embarrassing nor even distasteful. I wouldn't want to make your father uncomfortable, she nodded at him, as though she'd come to a very logical conclusion on the matter. Okay, he said, tickling her quickly. You win. Now you're just making me uncomfortable. You knew I would. You cannot play this game with me. You should know better. 
She nodded sternly, although she broke out in a smile and kissed him deeply. Yes, yes, he said. My father always seems to come up in these conversations. I hope we can one day have a day all to ourselves. No talk of the Governor-General at all. That would be nice. But he is the centre of my world as he is yours. I know. He governs me as tightly as he does the city. It's no worse for me. The workers at the mansion fear for their every mistake. He is very strict. We all worry about displeasing him. Francis felt so helpless and wanted only to help her. He stroked her dark forearm as he said, And you more than others, I know. I almost wish you'd never hired you to escort me to that dinner. We've been so careful, so discreet. But he knows about us. He knows everything. Don't say that, Ching Ren. You're the only thing that gives me hope. The only thing for me here. My family cannot come to Malfo. Not until we save enough. I labor all day in your father's gardens, and the Shifu is very brutal. Maybe more than your father, because he must bear the punishment for all my mistakes. All the mistakes of the grounds laborers. Karai. Maybe we shouldn't try to bring your family here. Maybe you and I need to get out of here. Go back there and start over. Just you and me. And my family? We'll find a way to get them out of the Three Kingdoms. We'll find a way. No, Ching Ren. Your father would find you. He'd find me. He could never tolerate such defiance. The son of the most important man in Malifaux consorting with a lowly prostitute? I would bear him great dishonor. I wouldn't let him hurt you, Francis said, squeezing her upper arm tightly. I can never let anyone hurt you. She smiled warmly at him. I am not worried for myself. I am worried for you. You cannot stop him. We know this. And I know it would hurt you if something happened to me. Your father will not know until it is too late. I cannot allow you to be hurt either. She was, of course, correct. His father would try to remove her from his life. Although she tried to protect her innocence, and many experiences with her were most certainly exaggerated and bragged upon by those who hired her, a rumor was as powerful as truth. Francis pulled her closer, and the two lay together in that way that lovers do, basking in the warmth of each other's bodies, neither urgent to begin the day. He pulled her hand into his and held them together between their bare chests, his fingers absently spinning the new ring he'd placed upon her finger. The light from the thin curtains grew, but Francis would not succumb to the growing need for them to part, though he knew she must return to the mansion's grounds within the hour. Still, he spoke to her, relating the tale of the ring, how he'd led an expedition into the ruins of old Malifaux's quarantine zone and discovered a most curious structure. A large vault, he explained, whose hemispherical ceiling was painted to mimic Malifaux's night sky, had been filled with what appeared to be a giant astrolabe. Karai was enthralled by her lover's romantic descriptions of the beautiful structure and was reminded why she loved Francis so much. He could make the most mundane thing look beautiful in another light, and he made beautiful images in his mind come alive before her. He continued to discuss how the place was ruined. He continued to discuss how the place was ruined, however, and there was evidence of a great struggle. Some of the structure had been burnt, and much of the equipment had been knocked over and broken. Pockmarks in the wall suggested some sort of gunfight. In the process of exploring the scene, he'd found the ring. So many discoveries there, but none as valuable as this, he said. The green stones glowed like your eyes. I knew it should belong to you. Then the union is complete. Now when I see the serpent upon my finger, I will think only of you, as it has made you think only of me. 
She nodded, as if a covenant had been finalized. A rattling of the locked door jolted them into sudden awareness, and the mechanical sound of metal clicking caused Francis to sit up quickly. His eyes widened in fear. Karai could not identify the sound, but Francis knew exactly what it was. Their intimacy vanished, replaced with urgency. Get dressed, he whispered sharply, and Karai knew not to question him. The sound was that of a revolver's cylinder snapping closed. Francis slipped from the sheets and did not bother with his own clothes. From his belt beside the bed, however, he drew his saber and moved to stand next to the door. On the other side of the room, Karai hastily pulled on her kimono and gripped it closed around her body. Her fear was clearly visible, but she found reassurance in Francis, who gestured silently for her to hide. Just as she ducked down behind the wardrobe, the door burst open with a kick from the other side. The intruder's raised revolver was the only introduction that Francis needed. His saber fell with a powerful stroke that cut deeply into the man's wrist, nearly severing it. The man screamed and stared at his gun on the floor in disbelief. He crumpled to his knees. Overcome by the shock as Francis moved up with fluid purpose. With the momentum of his stride, Francis crossed the doorway and spun to crouch behind the opening. The next assailant stepped over his howling accomplice and fired a blast just over Francis' head. He had expected to see a man standing there, and the gunman had fired his weapon at chest height. Francis' lowered posture exploited this assumption, and he leapt forward with a powerful thrust, sinking his saber deep into the man's torso, expertly striking immediately below the ribcage and up into the lungs and heart with little resistance, killing him instantly. The dead man slumped against him, and Francis shot a glance to where Karai hid. Run! Run, Karai! Get out of here! Karai gasped and peeked around the corner to witness the violence. She was stunned by the sight of it, unable to move. She knew Francis had trained at the Naval Academy, an experience he remarked upon often, but she'd never thought of him as a warrior, surprised to see a man so eloquent and poetic fight at all. His skill with a saber made her suddenly question what she knew of him, and the further confusion immobilized her as she sought some way to help while still trying to accept that he could defend himself better if he did not fear for her own protection. Shoot the whore, you idiots, another man shouted from the hallway. Her eyes saw him and her heart sank. He was tall and thin, wearing the standard navy duster and wide-brimmed hat issued to guild guardsmen, and the insignia upon his uniform marked him as an officer. He leveled his revolver at her and it erupted with fire, blasting a large hole out of the wardrobe at her side. He quickly fired again. She screamed, covering her face with tiny hands. The gunfire snapped her out of her daze and she dashed toward the balcony window, knocking the frail frame aside as she burst into the cool morning air. She hurried to the railing and glanced down at the ivy-coloured lattice below as sounds of combat continued behind her. She turned to look back at Francis. The wounded man howled in rage and pain but took up his revolver in his other hand. He levelled it at her lover, but as Francis scampered backward, the large man remaining in the hall burst into the room. No, you idiot! Gideon yelled. He brought his knee up sharply against the man's head just as he pulled the trigger, the gun lurching forward with the blow. Francis cried out as the bullet meant for his chest dug into his shoulder. He dropped the saber as he fell back against the bed. Karai screamed and danced about in panic. She was trapped. Gideon leveled the gun upon the Asian woman upon the balcony. Time to finish this, he said. He took his time, fearing nothing from the boy and only momentarily reluctant. He thought of the payment he desperately needed, regretting the necessity to kill this young girl. As he pulled the trigger, Francis leapt between the gunman and the girl, taking the bullet just above his right breast. He fell dead without a word. Gideon gasped, staring in stunned disbelief at the boy, 
The governor's son, now dead, just paces away. Gideon lifted his gun toward the balcony to finish the job, but the woman was gone. The instinct to chase her to earn his contract was strong. He desperately needed to collect upon it. At his feet, however, was the body of the governor's son. He nudged the body with his foot, turning the man onto his back. Kneeling beside him, he checked for a pulse. The governor's son was dead, and Gideon knew that he soon would be too. Utterly, utterly heartbreaking. D don't say we don't pull on your heartstrings every now and then. Certainly makes a change from having them literally pulled on by some vile creature of the night. As we leave, an update on the Lost Guild Peacebringer. It has all been solved, thanks to Mr. Rogerson for handing it in. Both Rogerson and Guardsman Alcorn have been fast-tracked to the stocks of being in possession of and losing the item respectively. Just goes to show that in Malfo City, bad things happen.